I'm getting set up here. I wanted to put up this week. We've got, um, like always, five more episodes of Rooted Daily. We've got a lot of people watching those, and we'd like um, even more to watch them and for you to, to share them with others as you get the opportunity um, throughout the week. And then that number again, if you um, haven't signed up for the text list yet. But this evening, we're going to continue talking about how um, we can grow up and become adults and become the Christians that God wants us to be. And there was a man, uh, you know, I was just sitting down, um, getting ready. I was cleaning my glasses, and it, the, the lens was about to pop out. I got to thinking, this would really uh, be awful if my lens pops out right now. I don't know what I would do. And that sort of thing, that throws you off. And there was a man who was scheduled to speak for... Um, an important dinner. He was getting an award. Um, he was an older man, and while he was eating his dinner, he, he bit into something pretty hard, um, and his dentures popped out. He broke one of his, his fake teeth. I didn't know what to do. He said, I can't believe this to the man next to him. My false teeth, they just broke. I've got to get up, and I've got to speak in a few moments. What on earth am I going to do? Fortunately, the man next to him, he said, no worries. You know, I've got an extra pair for you to use. <laughs> and man, he, he pulls out, it's not even done yet. Uh, pulls out the, this uh, case, and he has three teeth there, and he tries the first one in, and it's too loose, and that's not going to work. Next set, and it's too tight, that's not going to work. But the third set, it fits like a dream. He's totally relieved, goes up and gives this fantastic speech, and at the end of the evening, he goes up uh, to, to this man who gave him the teeth, he said, you really did me a great favor tonight. And in fact, um, I've been looking for a dentist in town. We just moved. Um, I haven't been able to find one yet. Do you have a card or something that I can call your office? Where are you located? And the other man, he said, well, I'm not a dentist. I'm an undertaker. <laughs> Lauren's not laughing. I <laughs> There are people who find it uncomfortable. It doesn't matter if they have the right teeth in or the right glasses on or anything to talk to anyone about anything. It doesn't matter what position they are in. They're going to feel, feel ill at ease teaching anybody, especially when we're talking about serious things like the Bible and Jesus. And actually, we know that attitude is not abnormal. We uh, recall when God asked Moses in the desert, uh, to lead his people out of Egypt. He came in the form of a burning bush, right? And in Exodus 3, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And so when the Lord saw that he was turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then in verse 5, then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said to him, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, 
to the place of the Canaanites and the uh, Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Then in verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God commanded Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Tell Pharaoh that they're going to leave Egypt. What does Moses say back? Do we remember? Not the right man? He he wasn't an eloquent speaker. What else did he say? What? No one's going to listen to him. Pharaoh's not going to listen to him. Anything else? Comes up with excuse after excuse. In fact, I think we can count uh, at least five reasons why he wouldn't speak up for God. Any other excuses we can think Moses made? He wasn't an eloquent speaker. He wasn't adequate for the job. What else? Two. No one would listen to him. That's three. What else did he say? Okay, let's look at him. Excuse number one. Why did Moses say in response to God's command to speak in his name? First he said, I'm not adequate for the task. He asked, who am I? And he felt inadequate. He, he felt that uh, he wasn't the, uh, enough to do this. By himself, in fact, he was inadequate. And, and so are we. But God said in, in response to Moses, I will be with you in verse 12. You know, the deliverance of these people wasn't based on Moses' strength because Moses clearly didn't have enough to get them through. It was based on the power and the sufficiency of God. And when God selects people like us to serve his purposes, that's what he says we are as churches or as Christians, we are to serve his purposes, he provides us the resources to be successful. And so Moses should have heard that. He said, who am I? And God said, well, you're an incredible thing when you're with me. But that wasn't enough for Moses. He kept going. Next, he said in verse 13, I don't know enough. And he says, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? You know, Moses was uh, afraid that the, the Israelites might ask him a question that Moses didn't know the answer to. How many times do we use that as an excuse not to teach people? Well, I don't know all the answers yet. Well, none of us do. No one does. Jesus did, and Jesus taught, and he taught us that we should teach as well, even before we know all the answers. And again, God had an answer for Moses here. He said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you, in verse 14. So in response to to Moses' concern, God reveals himself. He says, don't worry that you don't have all the answers. Whenever we think we're not smart enough, or we don't know enough, or we haven't studied enough, God says, I am. And that was enough. Number three, Moses said, people aren't going to take me seriously. In the first verse of chapter four, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? This is talking about the Israelites. This is even before he gets to Pharaoh. What if the Israelites won't even believe me? How on earth am I going to go to Pharaoh if I can't convince them? Now, God's already promised in verse 18 of chapter 3, they will listen to what you say. God's already made that clear. 
But Moses is still protesting here. And again, the Lord, he counters this excuse that the people didn't take Moses seriously. They would take seriously the three powerful signs that God performed through Moses for them. Then number four, he says, I'm no good with words. I have never been eloquent. Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent in verse 10 of chapter 4. And again, God, he'd already told Moses what to say. He'd already said God was going to be enough for him, that that's what he needed, that he was, in fact, enough. And yet Moses is still making excuses. And the Lord responds to this excuse. Who placed the mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And then finally... Number five, someone else is more qualified. Someone else knows more. Someone else is more prepared for this. Someone knows how to say the right things. Someone else can do this. Lord, please send someone else, Moses said in verse 13 of chapter 4. And maybe this wasn't even a, an excuse. This was just more of an explanation. Send someone else. I'm not going to do it because I don't think I enough. I think someone out there must be better qualified for, for what you're calling me to do. And for every excuse that Moses made, God offered promise and, and provision. But having run out of excuses, Moses just said, I don't want to do it. I know that, that you're going to provide for me. You made that clear, but I just don't want to do it. And that's really the, the issue here, isn't it? I mean, we're not simply... Um, feeling uncomfortable with stepping out. We're just not willing to do it. So what other excuses do we make when God calls us? Can we think of any other than what Moses did here? Why we wouldn't go and teach others? Why might Moses have that? What other excuses could he have come up with? What? How are we going to get there and... Okay, he had work to do right here. I can't go out and do this. I've got responsibilities. How old was Moses this time? Was he a young man? 80 years old. How many people at 80 years old are just starting about talking out, going, taking on the, the political leader of the world at the time? That's incredible. What else might he say? Maybe we're not too old. What else might we say? Well, I'm too young. Moses might not have said that. Jeremiah 1.7 says, Jeremiah is saying, I am only a youth. We can come up with excuses no matter. That's what we talked about in class this morning. We can come up with excuses not to do what God wants us to do no matter where we are. Moses did it. And over and over again, God says, I will provide for you. You will have everything you need to accomplish this. But that didn't matter to Moses. The facts didn't matter to Moses. He just didn't want to do it. And it's interesting how God responds to Moses here. Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord, in chapter 4, verse 11? And translation is there, don't give me your excuses. You know, I know who you are. I know what you're capable of, and I want you to do this. And if I ask you to do something, I will make it possible. You know, this morning we talked about how Christians need to grow and how we need to mature, and ultimately uh, we need to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And one of the things we saw that we need to do to achieve that is we need to give something to people to imitate, something good. Christ is our perfect example, and we should follow it 
so closely, just like Paul did, that others can imitate how we live and follow Christ. We're always an example to someone, and we can either be an example that shows people how to get to heaven, or we can be an example for people that shows them how to get to hell. And so working on the example we set should be our top priority. It matters. People are following it. And when people see us being servants of others, they will see God. When people see us being merciful, as our Father is merciful, then they will respond to that as well. As in Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In Matthew 5, 16. We see all these different things that we can do to set a Christ-like example that matters. But this evening, I want to turn a little bit because it's important that we set the right example. But setting the right example isn't enough. It's not enough just to be a great example. Sometimes we use being an example as an excuse not to teach. Well, I can just step back and I can be in my workplace and I can be a light shining into that workplace and I never have to talk about Christ. I never have to talk about the Bible. All I have to do is act Christ-like. All I have to do is be kind and love people, and that is enough. But the fact is, we aren't kind and we aren't loving if we're not talking about Christ. We say we're not good enough, or we don't know enough, or not enough people will follow us, and that's why we won't tell people the greatest news mankind has ever heard. We say that if we just live godly lives, people are going to respond to that alone. And it's true that our lives, they should be examples. They should shine the light of the gospel into a dark world. That's just the starting point. You know, we live lives that can be imitated, so then we can go to people and say, this is who Jesus is. And this is why my life is transformed, so that they can have eternal life too. Don't use your example as a reason not to teach. That's just the starting point. And here, Hebrews 5, we read it this morning, we're told that faith requires us to go further than just our example. We find that part of maturity, part of growing up as children of God, is getting to a point in our faith where we seek opportunities to teach people. Writer of Hebrews says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In fact, Paul, he writes that this should be a part of our worship experience. This afternoon we took some time uh, to learn some new songs that we can uh, sing to one another so that we can edify one another. Colossians 3.16 says that's the reason why we sing, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Our singing should be teaching one another, teaching each other, admonishing one another, singing to one another. That is central to what we do when we worship. And teaching has always been a major part of our responsibility towards God. David taught 
in his songs. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord in Psalm 34, 11. The law of Moses commanded parents to teach their children, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7. Paul advised Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. Titus was instructed that he was to teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Titus 2.3-4. Oh, teaching is central to who and what we're supposed to do. But some, like Moses, still might say, but I don't have the gift of teaching. Teaching is obviously required. We all know that. We don't know enough now. We need someone to teach us more. We recognize that. But we say, that's not my job, though. Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, we say, just like Moses. So why would we say, I don't have the gift of teaching, when pretty clearly throughout Scripture we're told, we are to be teachers. Why might we say, I'm not gifted to teach? Fear. Absolutely. Absolutely. We think of it as a, a talent that we've got instead of something that we have to work on and something that we have to develop over time. Pretty clearly here in Hebrews chapter 5, he's talking about uh, at this point they should have been teachers, but they were immature, saying that as we mature, we become teachers. It's not something that we walk out of the womb ready to, to stand behind a lectern and, and teach large crowds. It's something that we develop over time and learn to teach in those different situations. Why else might we say, I don't have the gift of teaching? I've had a bad experience with teaching. Absolutely. Did I hear something else? Okay. So we think of teaching as something we either have or we don't have, this gift, and if something goes wrong, then... That's an indication to us, well, maybe we don't have that gift. Somebody else probably wouldn't have been rejected like that, we think to ourselves. Anything else? I don't want to do, take the effort. That's what it came down to for Moses. Romans 12, it says, and this might be where we get some of this idea about teaching being just a gift. It says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it to, in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with libera li liberality, <laughs> he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so some might say, well, I don't have the gift of teaching, and so I don't have to teach. But we look at this and we see the fatal flaw in this. Because among these other gifts that we can have, what's included? Mercy. Now, there might be some people who are particularly adept at 
showing mercy to others, but does anyone here doubt that we should all show mercy to other people? Of course not. Or in ministering, serving to other people. Yeah, there might be people who are particularly qualified at that. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't all be ministering to one another, showing mercy, leading, etc. We can go through these giving to others. Of course, we're all to be cheerful givers. And so it becomes obvious when we, we look at these seven gifts here in Romans 12 that they reflect something that every Christian ought to do. Every Christian ought to be willing to call sin, sin, which is the heart of prophecy or the prophet. Every Christian ought to serve others and encourage others and give to the needs of others and uh, willing to help in their realm of influence and show mercy to others and teach. You know, when God is saying here in Romans 12 is that while everyone in the church should show mercy, there's some people who are particularly gifted to do that. And, and we'll get back to that here in a second. I, I was kind of stuck on this idea that these seven gifts listed here in Romans 12, there's something that every Christian ought to be doing. And I, I was wondering, if everyone's supposed to be doing it, why on earth would God give those gifts to specific people? If we're all supposed to be growing into this, if we're all supposed to be growing into teachers, uh, then why would some people be better at that than other people? Why would he not gift us all with that ability and that talent so that we can invest that passion into his kingdom? And then it it struck me. I I thought I realized why God did it this way. I read this illustration about the Purdue Glee Club, which I know is at Purdue, but if you don't count that against them, I assume they were a good group. And the director of of that men's group was a man named Al Stewart. And when he first joined... um, the group, he, he was part of a, a, a singers and, and um, one of the sections, and he thought that he would be um, along some of the greatest singers you could find around, but it wasn't, or apparently it wasn't true. Uh, he was in the group, and uh, he found out that all the people there were there by political connections, or they were there because they were on some sort of scholarship. They weren't there because they were particularly talented. There was no audition process for most of the people who were there, they were there because someone wanted them there. And the guy who was running it was a businessman, and he wanted to sell tickets. And he realized it doesn't matter how good the group is to sell tickets, it matters who you can get their parents to come and buy a block of seats for you. And so he got this group together. It was not very talented, but they still sounded pretty decent because he came up with a strategy. He said, I can find all the, the, the students with political connections or, or money connections, whatever, but I'm going to put a really great person in each section, and four sections. I'm going to put one great leader in each section, and they are going to be really talented. And the other people, they're going to learn. They're going to practice. They're going to come with us, but we're going to put in these ringers in the, uh, each section, and they're going to lead the rest. Now, of course, Ultimately, at the concert comes, everybody needed to sing well. Everybody needed to perform well. But it was these leaders that brought the others along. And that, I think that's what God does with the church. He plants ringers in the congregation. He places uh, a passion in the hearts of several people to do things that we are all called to do. He's put encouragers in this congregation. He's put teachers in this congregation. He's put cheerful givers in this congregation, not because we aren't all supposed to be servants and encouragers and teachers and cheerful givers, but because we need that one leader to show us how it's done. It's always going to be our 
temptation to push difficult situations and difficult work onto someone else's plate. And we can face it, teaching is hard. And so God has given us people who are great at it, not because they're supposed to do all of the teaching and all of the work, but because they're supposed to show us and lead the way. And another reason some people draw back from desiring to become teachers is that they believe teaching has to be done uh, in a formal setting. That's why we, we tend to think of teaching as a gift that only select people have, right? Because there's only one podium here. Only one person can fill it at any given time. And so we think, well, that must mean there's a limited set of people who are to be teachers. But how else can we teach other than behind this podium? Bible studies in our homes. So, yeah, as far as we know, and what Mike said, um, this isn't the only place we teach people. This podium isn't the only place we teach people. As far as we, we look throughout the New Testament, we don't see any um, indication that they had what you know, we have as Sunday school now or youth groups or um, you know, separate settings for, for classes you know, and that thing. They, they didn't have church buildings. They met in homes and in public buildings and out on the street and anywhere they could find. And wherever they met, they worshiped God and they taught other, others about their faith. Of course, you know, we have an incredible resource here in the, this facility that we're able to, to bring people in in a comfortable environment and, and share time together. But the early Christians, they were all over the place teaching about Jesus. And even in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what were parents um, supposed to do for their children? When were they supposed to be teaching them? It wasn't when they went to worship. It wasn't when they went to the temple or the tabernacle. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. We are to always be teaching. There's teachers in all of us. And so you see, teaching, it doesn't have to be in a formal setting. We don't need a blackboard. We don't need a lectern to do it. And in Hebrews, we learn that God expects all of us to eventually become teachers. He said, by this time, you ought to be teachers. And it doesn't mean that we're all going to stand behind a lectern someday, but we all are going to be teaching. How many of you have ever been on Facebook? 
very small group of people raising their hands. That's okay. Have you ever notice what people share on Facebook? They share what matters to them, right? They talk about politics, they talk about sports, they talk about current events, they talk about their families, but people share things on Facebook that's important to them. And you know what sharing something that is important to you is called? Teaching. Same thing. You've ever pulled out your wallet and shared a picture of your kids. Maybe you're not on Facebook or the internet, or maybe now you've transitioned into the cell phone, and now you've got the pictures on the cell phone, or you talk to people about your favorite team, or maybe you have an opinion about the current presidential race that you tell people about. We all, I think, are doing a little bit of that from time to time. And again, you're sharing something that is important to you, and sharing something that is important to you, something that you care about, That is teaching. Now, here's the deal. Jesus wants you to share him. Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. What he's saying is when we pull out those pictures of our kids out of our wallet or on our cell phone, what he's saying is we should be just as willing to tell people about Jesus, otherwise we are not worthy of him. We can do some substituting here. Anyone who loves their favorite football team more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their political party more than me is not worthy than me or worthy of me. Anyone who loves anything more than Jesus is not worthy of him. And we need to get to the point where Jesus is the most important topic we talk about. We know we're willing to talk to people about the things we care about, and we need to make Jesus the most important thing in our lives, the thing that we care most about. You know, back in the days of the early church, they didn't have uh, Sunday school, they didn't have blackboards or whiteboards or flannel graphs or whatever we've used in the past or overhead projectors, and classrooms or church buildings. They didn't have uh, uh, spaces to, designated where they went. They went everywhere, and they taught because they had a driving passion for Christ And they talked about him everywhere. It's easy to look around and see a world that is collapsing, a world that that has all these problems. We turn on the the evening news, we see death and hate and and suffering. And when we were kids, right, that's what we were talking about this morning, our parents tried to shield us from that suffering. Why, uh, Why would our parents try to shield us from that? Why did they not want us to see all the suffering in the world? Try to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. Mike? Try to keep a positive outlook. As children, we weren't prepared to hear those things. We weren't mature enough. We we weren't capable of processing it and putting it in perspective. We were just too immature. And when we've grown up, we're supposed to be able to handle it, right? We're supposed to be able to watch the evening news and be okay. We're supposed to be able to put that in perspective. But we know without God, it's impossible. We're reading through Ecclesiastes on Sunday mornings, and Solomon says it pretty clearly. Everything is meaningless if God's not in the picture. We turn on the evening news, and it is meaningless. The world is just arrogant. It's just without any meaning at all. There's no way to put it together and understand why the things are happening around us. But with God, we can't. David wrote, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me in Psalm 119, 
98. And I believe that Paul had that in mind when he wrote, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. You know, what is the weapon that we have to demolish strongholds and overcome arguments and wipe away any pretension? It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God, and it is so powerful that Hebrews says it penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So, we can keep going on and, care, and talking about the things we care about and talking with people about politics and culture or opinions, um, and we can talk about it on our terms, about what the world understands and what society understands, but why would we limit ourselves to that? Why would we keep using the world's arguments and using the world's framework of, of thinking of things when we have a weapon that divides even to uh, joints and marrow? We have something that puts everything else in perspective, and when we are mature, that is what we will rely on and that is what we will rely on alone. Hebrews 5 tells us that as Christians, our goal should reach the point of maturity where we all become teachers, and not just teachers of our opinion, not just teachers of our preferences, but teachers of Christ. That's what maturity looks like. That's why we need to start training for that and using whatever opportunities we have right now. You know, a young man who heard uh, the gospel uh, he accepted Christ. And a little while after this, a uh, uh, preacher came up to him and asks, what have you done for Christ since you believed? And he replied, oh, well, I'm a learner for now. Well, the, the preacher said, when you light a candle, do you light it to make the candle more comfortable or do you light it to have light? He replied, well, to give light. Do you expect it to give light after it's half burned or when you first light it? And he replied, well, as soon as I light it, that's what I thought. Decide then, are you lit for your own comfort or to give light? And God has called each and every one of us to be a teacher. May not be behind a podium somewhere, but we're all teaching someone. We're already giving an example, and we know we need to set a good one because someone is following what we do, and we need to talk to people about why we act the way we do. It's not enough just to act. We have to talk to them too. You know, our time as students is up. We shouldn't be sitting here because we want to be comfortable, but because we want to shine the light that only the gospel can provide into a dark world. So if you're ready to step into that light, to turn away from your old life, to start a new one with Christ, or you're here and you realize that your light has dimmed, you need the encouragement and the prayers and the accountability of this group of believers to get a, a fire lit inside of you again, now is the time to come to the front of the room as Roger leads us in song.